do you know what time it is? It's supernatural story time. And if you're easily scared, and even if you're not, there's only one thing left to do. Just turn off the lights, because these are stories that you listen to only in the dark. After the night rolls in, volume two, story number one. An older man lived in Pocahontas County, remembered as a child a story of a family who bought an older farmhouse. The story goes that after living there for a while, the family began witnessing the ghost of a small boy appearing on the hearth of the fireplace. The family became highly concerned or maybe frightened at the idea of their home being haunted by the netherworld. In that era, circuit preachers were known to travel the area, staying with local families that would have them. The family with a haunting had a guest preacher stay with them. One evening, the ghost appeared, again frightening the family enough that they ran from the room screaming, leaving the preacher alone in the presence of the apparition. The preacher then verbally confronted the ghost with the following statement, In the name of God the Father, I command you to tell me what you're doing here. The ghost then turned and faced the preacher squarely and stated plainly and clearly, I was murdered and buried beneath this very hearth. The ghost then disappeared with no further questioning. The very next day, the hearth was busted up using spikes and sledgehammers. The skeleton of an eight-year-old boy was found entombed in the concrete. After a proper burial of the remains, the ghost never bothered the family again. My wife and I were married in early 1991. Within a few months, I was taken to meet the late great Oda Lewis Hefner, my wife's great-grandmother, who was living at the time. The saying that a fine wine ages with time could very well apply to the great Oda. Oda, or Odie as everyone called her, was very interesting to engage in conversation with. Odie was also bright as a tack and in time had not dulled her memory or thought process at all. She would speak of things that occurred in 1932 as though it were yesterday. During one of our prolonged conversations, I asked her about ghosts or ghost experiences. The first story she told me I will never forget. When Odie was a little girl, she briefly stayed with her relatives. An aunt told her that a ghost woman would appear in their house and hurry down the stairs from the upstairs to the downstairs and right out the front door of the house. After the ghost woman had done this for several occasions, the aunt became confrontational and stepped squarely into the path of the hurried ghost. The aunt then asked the ghost to state its business there. The ghost woman, using its hand, then struck or scratched the aunt on the face, leaving a mark for life. Odie stated that the aunt, except for the particular mark left on her face for life, was never bothered again by the ghost woman. Story number two. In January 1996, a massive snowstorm made travel along West Virginia backroads nearly impossible to traverse. At the time, it was employed by the federal prison Camp Alderson. With the storm at its most severe, I got off from work one night at midnight. The previous night, I had walked home only to sleep a few hours and then walk back to work for the 8 a.m. shift. This night, I chose to find a place to sleep at the prison. At first, I thought maybe sleeping in the floor of the counselor's office might be ideal, then decided against it as possibly being too disruptive for a good night's sleep. Davis Hall was the old prison lockdown unit for disruptive prisoners, a jail building inside a prison for all intents and purposes. At the time, it was vacant with no house prisoners or working staff, just big, silent, and empty, the ideal place to sleep peacefully, or so I thought. The yard officer took me to Davis Hall sometime after midnight, 
We had an extremely difficult time getting the side door open because of several feet of snow drifted against it. No one had been in the building, obviously, in quite a while. After the yard officer locked the steel bars, then the side door, I began to think about my situation. Locked alone inside a huge, two-story vacant, escape-proof brick building with no radio keys or access to a telephone. Right away, I changed into a pair of coveralls that had been in my truck. I dropped my uniform garments into the washing machine prisoners I'd used before. As soon as the water began to flow, it was blood red in color from rust buildup in the pipes. To pass time, I found the book about just lying about and started to read it. All of a sudden, I noticed excited whispering over the din of the washing machine. Every time I tried to locate the source of the whispering, it was nowhere to be found. Finally, my uniform was washed, dried, and permanently stained. I sought out a bed to lie down on. One of the rooms was unlocked with the bed made up. I walked right in and laid down. The whispering had changed mostly to voices, but what gave me the creeps the most was when it felt as though someone was touching my face. I rolled over and buried my face as deep as it would go in the pillow and slid my hands under the sides of the pillow to shove it up around my ears. I was determined not to see or hear anything that would totally freak me out, especially knowing there was no escape until the yard officer unlocked the doors in the morning. Somehow, I managed to go to sleep. When I woke the next morning and let out, I never intended to spend another night in Davis Hall ever again. Most staff who heard about what I did said, only a crazy person would spend the night locked up in Davis Hall alone. Davis Hall was torn down later. Next story. My family who grew up on Ward Road has experienced these series of encounters. Growing up, going to my grandmother's house was an every evening thing. I would hear my mother and her siblings talk about the things they had experienced growing up beside the woman whose feet never touched the ground. The first story that I heard is one I will never forget. My uncle is not one who would believe in the supernatural, so hearing the experience from his lips, I knew it was factual. My grandfather owned many acres that crossed with a woman whose feet never touched the ground. My uncle would usually cut through her yard, coming and going from school. Not believing the stories his sisters had told him, he never thought anything would happen to make him change his mind. One day the woman decided to grace my uncle with her presence. As he was crossing her landmark that separated my grandfather's land and her own, he had a sudden chill run up and down his spine. He turned to look over his shoulder to double-check. Nothing was behind him, when sure enough he finally saw the woman whose feet never touched the ground. He stated that she was hovering across the grass, and behind her stood a table up on one leg dancing. The encounters didn't stop there. My mother and her younger sister would also use the woman's land to cut through to go to a relative's house. There was a fence that circled the woman's land. A portion of the fence was broken down, and this is where my mother and aunt would cross. One day, my mother and her sister were returning home from visiting my great-aunt. As my mother was crossing the broken part of the fence, both my mother and aunt heard a cackle, pausing them both in their tracks. As they looked back once again, the woman whose feet never touched the ground, graced them with her presence. My aunt then unpaused and hurried my mother across the fence, pushing her out of the way. They both ran home. When they finally got home out of breath, they babbled, as my grandfather puts it, about the woman whose feet never touched the ground. From then on out, my mother and aunt found another shortcut to take. 
About a week later, my mother and her sister was walking down the main road. There was an old black Chevy truck that would sit in front of the house that was haunted by that woman they had seen in the field. My mother stated that she had a gut feeling that the old woman was near, so she tried to get my aunt to walk up to the truck with her, but wouldn't. As my mother looked over the back side of the truck, the old woman was laying down in the bed. My mother tried calling my aunt to the truck, but then there was no reply. My mother looked over her shoulder to find my aunt already running up the road. She ran after her, and they both went home. Later that evening, my mother went back down the road to see if she could see the woman. And once again, my mother noticed her in the bed of the truck. This time she was standing. My mother stated that this was standing over a cauldron, stirring and mummering something she could make out. My mother stated that when the old woman looked at her, she had an awful appearance to her, so awful she couldn't describe it. Time passed. The old house burnt down in the mid-90s, and the woman that she saw in the field was never seen again. Next story. During the fall of 1980, my husband and his father were hunting a wild and remote part of Ritchie County called the Oxbow. My father-in-law had a passion for collecting old bottles and spotted an old house down in the field below where he was squirrel hunting. He walked down the hill towards the house, hoping to look around and find some old bottles. As he drew near to the old house, he saw a woman in one of the downstairs windows. She was dressed in a white dress and was waving at him. He thought nothing of it and hoped she wouldn't mind him checking things out. When he got to the house, the old door was open, so he walked in. Boy, was he surprised at the shambles inside. No one could possibly have lived there in years. The floor was rotten, and the area by the window where the woman stood was gone, literally rotted through and collapsed. A person could not have stood there and waved at him. He told us the hair literally stood up on the back of his neck, and he turned and ran out of there as fast as he could. My father-in-law was the biggest skeptic I had ever met. He wouldn't even listen to a tall tale or ghost story. However, my husband said when his father got back to the vehicle, he thought he was having a heart attack. His father was deathly pale and just said, let's get out of here. On the way home, he told my husband what had happened. Next story. About two years ago, I lived in Madison, West Virginia with my mother and her former husband. We rented an older house that sufficed our needs. The house appeared to be an ordinary quaint living space. I did find out there had been many owners prior to our family settling in, but I wasn't as sure if they experienced what we did in the house. I had heard that West Virginia bred paranormal activity. However, I was skeptical as to whether or not the stories were true. I would soon find out the legitimacy of the rumors I had heard. I've always believed in ghosts, but not as much in West Virginia being haunted despite all the claims that surround this belief. Before we moved to Madison, I had a few paranormal experiences, but nothing like I experienced in Madison. The first months of living in the residence were normal. Besides the presence I felt lurking around the quarters at peculiar times, I didn't really feel threatened or scared, just intrigued. My mom also sensed the bizarre presence. Late one night, I was sitting in my backyard, which overlooked the river. I was with a friend, and we heard a sound that resembled someone walking into the river. Next, we heard a plunking sound in the river like someone being baptized. My friend heard that there was a church on the hill that burned to the ground. Could this have possibly been a spirit that roamed about? Or maybe the ghost of someone who was killed in the church fire? I asked myself. 
although I was not sure about the cause of the sounds, I considered it a lot. We lived there baffled for two years. My stepfather, who didn't believe in ghosts, also experienced sightings and heard odd sounds during his brief stay at the dwelling. Those two years were littered with strange sightings and eerie experiences. And due to those events, I was converted over the, to belief that West Virginia is truly haunted. Next story. After the story circulated that I had slept over in the Davis Hall, that deserted part of the prison, another officer described something peculiar that happened to them. One night, this officer was working in Davis Hall alone. At that time, the newly committed inmates to federal prison camp Alderson were housed temporarily in Davis Hall before receiving their permanent assigned living areas in the cottages. One night, a busload of newly committed inmates were locked in rooms on the second floor. The officer found a bunch of the inmates still awake and frightened about something after the midnight count. The officer then went into the Davis Hall attic and, using a metal trash can lid, began hitting and banging the exposed plumbing vent pipes. The inmates on the second floor became hysterical and were screaming at the top of their lungs, not knowing what the commotion was. All of a sudden, there was a huge freaking kaboom, like the sound of the internal steel basement door being slammed shut. The officer knew the basement door should be locked at all times, with no one entering or exiting at that time. The officer quietly went to the attic door that had three flights of the stairs that went all the way to the basement door. The officer perceived that the on-duty lieutenant had heard the noisy commotion coming from Davis Hall and was coming to investigate via the basement door. The officer stood silently waiting near the top steps to identify who it was. Something or someone was coming up the stairs making angry huffing sounds. Presence made its way up the stairs and right past the bewildered officer and went into the attic, slamming the attic door closed behind it. The officer now was more frightened than the inmates that were locked on the second floor. He made sure the attic door was locked and then ran to the basement door to make sure it was locked. The officer then went to the officer station and remained locked in there for the remainder of the night, only coming out when required to do so. The officer who experienced this intriguing situation wished not to be identified. Next story. I was working at a little store on the Elk River near Elkview. I always got stuck with a night shift and it was boring most of the time. One night at about 3 a.m., I was standing behind the counter looking out the window when a car pulled in. It was an orange 1966 Chevelle SS. It pulled in and backed up to the window. A young man around 19 or so came into the store and said, Nice car. He turned and looked at me with sunken eyes and said, It's a death trap. He asked for a pair of lucky strikes and when I asked if he wanted filtered or non-filtered, he looked at me as if I was crazy and said, Non-filtered. I told him it was a dollar twenty-five, and he looked at me strange again. He handed me five quarters. I laid the money on the register, but didn't put it in the drawer. As he left, I told him again that he had a nice car. Again, he turned and said, it's a death trap. I looked back out the window and noticed the car had 1966 license plates on it. As he pulled out, he just barely missed the girl that made the biscuits in the morning as she pulled in. When she came in, I said, that was close. And she said, what was close? She never saw the car. I picked up the quarters and noticed they were ice cold and all dated before 1966. I talked to an old man that lived near there and he said the store was built on the old railroad tracks and the young man was killed trying to beat a train across the tracks near there in 1966. He was driving an orange 1966 
Chevelle SS. Next story. I will never forget the morning when I was heading to work as an RN at the old Stevens Clinic Hospital in Welch, West Virginia. It was early as I was on the 7 a.m. to 3 p.m. shift and had approximately a 45-minute drive from my home in Jenkins Jones to Welch. It was very foggy that morning, and at first I thought my eyes were playing tricks on me. But as I came closer, I was sure this was no trick of my eyes. I was nearing the turnoff to go across Elkhorn Mountain, and suddenly a man appeared in the side of the road near the turnoff. I slowed up as I thought it was someone I might know, or thought maybe there had been in a car accident up ahead. I got a good look at the image. It was a middle-aged man who had a long trench coat on and a poor man's hat on his head, pancake-style hat with brim. He appeared to be trying to flag me down, so I slowed down. But as I approached him slowly, he just disappeared. I was really shook up, and after all these years, I wondered what the significance of this incident was, what had happened in that area that would leave a soul in a state of unrest. I have told many of my friends and family about this incident with hopes of someone knowing of something that may have occurred at this area that would leave this place haunted. But no one knows anything. Next story. I used to live with my parents on Hubbard Place, across from the Wheeling Park entrance off National Road. I was about 17 or 18 at the time. I'm 25 now. My parents decided to rent the house instead of buying it because the backyard had collapsed off of the steep hillside behind the house and part of the garage was hanging off. They rented it from an older man whose wife had just died from cancer and he was getting remarried. However, even before them, the previous owner was an old man that apparently died from natural causes on the back porch. The room I chose was in the basement, which was turned into a den. There was a living room area, a bathroom, a small laundry room, and across from that room was my bedroom, which used to be the son's room. I chose it because it had a deep red carpet and I thought it was pretty. The room had no windows, so it was pitch black when the lights were turned off. Well, one night it was just me and my mother there because my dad was out of town for his job. Now my parents' room was right above mine and she was watching TV in her bedroom while I was in mine reading a book. I was in my room for the night, had shut off the rest of the lights downstairs and shut my bedroom door. As I was laying in bed reading, suddenly three distinct knocks occurred on my bedroom door. I paused, looked at my door, knowing my mother had not left her room because I could hear the TV. To verify the assumption, I yelled up, Mom? What? As soon as I heard a reply, like one second after I had heard the knock, my face felt hot. I doubt that my heavy-set mother, no offense, Mom, could have sprinted that far in one to five seconds. She would have had to fly up the stairs through the kitchen, then down the hallway to the back end to get to her bedroom. I still replied with a question. Did you just knock on my door? No. Well, someone just did. I jumped up but refused to open the door until my mom turned the lights on from the top of the stairs. I was a little excited that I was actually having a ghost encounter, but was still a little scared. I knew for certain that it was a distinct knocking on my door, and it could not have possibly been my mom. She turned on the lights and I looked outside my door to find no one. She stood at the top of the stairs holding the phone and said for me to look around downstairs. And if there was someone in the house that had broken in, then she would call the cops. Thanks, Mom. I looked everywhere, even in the tiny furnace room I had forgotten to mention before. Never found anyone. 
I guess it might have been the guy's mother coming to check on him since that had been his room. Who knows? Other times, during the day as well as nighttime, I would hear heavy footsteps walking around upstairs when no one else would be up there. Most of the time, I would be home alone when this happened, but it would also occur when I had friends over, but always when no one else could possibly be upstairs. They've heard it themselves. The first time I heard it, I was home alone and thought that my dad had come home. I never heard the front or back door open or close the whole time. The footsteps sounded just like boots that my dad wears, so I yelled upstairs several times with no response. Getting irritated because I believed he was deaf, I had gone upstairs and stood in the kitchen yelling for my dad thinking he was right there. Therefore, I grabbed a big knife and checked every room to make sure because I knew as soon as I reached the kitchen that my dad was certainly not in the house with me. Next story. My husband went to college at Glenville State and we both ran the Conrad Motel. Since you had to be there 24-7, it was very stressful, so some of our friends would come over and give us a few hours to ourselves, and we would usually go for a drive around town or explore some of the back roads in the hills. This one particular evening, we went driving and ran upon an old deserted house. It was gray wood without paint, and clearly no one had lived there for many years. We decided to go in and take a look. There was an old calendar newspaper pasted on the wall, some old furniture, and dishes still on the old wooden table as if they just got up and walked away. Because some of the windows were broken, the room was very dusty and covered with old leaves and spider webs at the corners of the wall. We looked around for a bit but began to feel like we shouldn't be there so we walked back to our car. All of a sudden, we heard what sounded like the whirling sound of a mind fan. We looked around but couldn't see anything. It was the beginning of dusk and it spooked us so we decided to go back home and call it a night. While we were driving off, I turned around to get one last look at the house. I saw the turned court and pulled back and an old gray-haired woman with her hair in a bun looking out the window. I let out a gasp and my husband wanted to know what was wrong. I pointed, he swore, and we got out of there as fast as we could. We told the story to our friend who was watching the motel force and the next day my husband and him decided they would go back for a closer look and see if they could find the source of the noise we heard and to check out the house for antiques. Although my husband knew those roads backwards and forwards, they never did find that old house or the source of that weird noise we heard. Next story. This story takes place in Cranberry, West Virginia, just outside of Beckley. When I was young growing up in Cranberry, it was a favorite pastime for all the boys to walk the train tracks to Skelton and back. We would walk on the rail as long as we could and see who could walk the furthest without falling off. We would always stop in the summer at the trestle and take a dip in the creek. After being gone way past supper one day, my mom sent a neighbor to look for us. When he found us, he took each one of us home and told our parents what we were doing. Of course, that didn't matter because a few days later we were right back on the tracks. As we were talking and walking the rails, we paid no attention that Paul, the man who found us and took us home a few days prior, was standing in the middle of the tracks. I thought I told you boys to stay away from that trestle. He was not angry, he just seemed concerned. He sat us down and told us the story of a man who came to Cranberry looking for work back in the 40s. No one knew who he was, but there was always work to be done in the mines. His name was Frank Easter. Paul told us about how much of a hermit he was 
how he would talk to no one and no one would ever see him after work. He lived in a single miner's house behind the company store, but he was never there. Paul then told us about how one day someone had seen something burning on the tracks just past the trestle early one morning. When a few men went to check it out, they found it to be Mr. Easter. Nobody knew then or now how he ended up on the tracks and on fire. Some people had suggested that he had gone to Beckley and got drunk and while coming home, he sat down on the tracks to rest. They had believed that he had lit his pipe, that he always smoked and passed out resulting in the fire. Paul took us down just a little ways past the trestle and showed us where Mr. Easter was found dead. To our amazement, there was the outline of a body burned in the cross ties. The mark covered some five ties. Paul told us to feel the burn marks. We did. They were hot. Paul told us that Mr. Easter walked the tracks every night and every morning around 4.30 and a fire ignites in the same place where Mr. Easter died. Paul told us that Mr. Easter would touch people if they walked down the tracks and he would not let anyone walk over the place where he died. He said that Mr. Easter would push us off the trestle. We just figured that Paul was trying to scare us and we continued to walk the tracks for the rest of our childhood. The only thing that changed was the fact that we came to where Mr. Easter's place and we moved the sh to the shoulder off the tracks until we passed. When we had grown older, we still had the story fresh in our minds. One day we decided to check out the burn place. It was the middle of November, cold and snowy. When we reached Mr. Easter's place, the snow had covered up the tracks except for the place where Mr. Easter died. The outlines of the body was there very clear. The dark charred cross ties against the white snow will always be in my mind. The three of us smelled smoke, wood smoke. We all touched it again. It was hot. Scared and shaken, we walked swiftly back towards home. After we reached the middle of the bend before the trussel, one of my friends looked back and stopped dead in his tracks. He said, look. We all turned around. There at the place, as we called it, stood a man. He was pale, but nevertheless a man. He was wearing bank clothes, miners wore clothes, and from his mouth hung a long crook-necked pipe. He half waved to us, and he was gone. A few weeks later, when we could all finally discuss what happened, we talked to a few people about Mr. Easter. We were told the same story repeatedly of how he died. We were also told that he was buried in the graveyard, on the hill, atop the slate dump, behind what is now Cranberry Woods Apartments. We, of course, made the long trek up the slate dump weeks later to see his grave. Now in January, with light snow in the ground, there was Mr. Easter's grave, the headstone dry with no snow covering it. The grave itself had no snow on the ground. We couldn't believe it. The other graves were snow covered, but not Mr. Easter's. We were told by a biology teacher from Woodrow Wilson High School, who came with us a few days later to check the grave out, that there were many different scientific reasons why the snow melted on a grave. He, however, had no explanation why Mr. Easter's grave was the only one that this happened to. Now the years have passed on, but Mr. Easter still remains on my mind. The train tracks in Cranberry were taken up a few years ago to make way for the ill-fated Rails to Trails project. When I heard the tracks were coming up, I once more went to the place and felt the warmth of the cross ties. But this time, I took two loose railroad spikes that were right beside the burn marks. After the tracks were taken away, it was reported that the gravel in the same place was blackened. I checked. It is.
it also is just as hot as when the cross ties were there. Many walking the tracks at night now see Mr. Easter. The fire still burns at the same time in the morning. The cross ties that were taken up sat in the number two holler for a long time, and it was witnessed that a man was seen sitting on them at night. As for the railroad spikes, I still have them. They rest on a shelf in the living room. I've had friends and family pick up the spikes and in pure disbelief realize that they're hot. We even put them in the freezer one day. Two hours later, they were just as hot as ever. I last visited Mr. Easter's place two weekends ago when I was on vacation back in West Virginia. The gravel is still hot and the outline of Mr. Easter's body is still there. As crazy as it sounds, that is the truth. Next story. It all started about ten years ago. I had just lost my job and was looking for a cheap place to live. I was looking in the paper when I found a low-income apartment for rent. I called about it to make sure it was still empty. When I found out where it was, I went over there to put in my application. I got a call about two or three days later to come and look at it if I still wanted it. When I saw it and saw how good it looked, I told them I would take it. I started moving in the next day because I wanted to get in as soon as I could. Once I got settled in, I noticed the air was not working. I called maintenance and they told me it worked just fine. The next day I turned on the air and it wasn't working. It was so hot in that apartment you could sit still and be ringing wet with sweat. I called a second time and was told it was working good. I put up with that for about a month and finally they changed the filter then it started working. There were other strange things that happened as well. The microwave would turn on by itself. I would wake up and look all over the place for my keys and they would be in the lock of the door on the outside. Sometimes the TV would turn off and then back on. You could turn the bathroom light off at night and in the morning it would be turned on. One day I was going downstairs getting ready to go to my mom's when the old woman that lived down below me asked me, Why do you walk the floors at night? I told her, I don't. When I get home I eat something then go to bed. Well, what is that dragging sound I hear all night long? She asked, It must be the woman across from me, I said to her. When I got back from my mom's, the other lady downstairs asked me, Did you know what happened to the last person who lived in your apartment? No, I said. Well, he died right there where your couch is sitting. You're kidding, I said. No, come to think of it, just the one, everyone that has lived in that apartment has died in it, she said. I didn't believe her, so I asked the maintenance man, and they told me the same thing. It was not long after that that I moved out.